Church, would you remain standing with me as we read Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 and 15 through 23. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ears to my direction. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we return this morning to our study of the Lord's teaching on the study of divorce and remarriage. And you have no idea. You have no idea how bad I want to preach this. I don't want to do this, man. Just where God has us. I begged him this morning. I said, man, just make me sick. So I don't have to preach. Just let the, let the power go out or something. This is new. I don't cry, man. I don't want to do this. I know, I know. No preacher gets up and, pre and, and decides one Sunday morning, man, I want to just go wreck some folks. And so if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, I would ask you to go back. Just go to the church center app and, and click on that button and listen to everything I said there. It's, it's important as we unfolded God's, God's good and his perfect plan for our marriages, it's important that it's important you hear what was said there because we've got no business ask, asking the question and even less business answering the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Until we've gone all the way back to the beginning. We've gone all the way back to creation. We've gone all the way back before the fall, and we have looked at 
and given our lives completely to striving after God's unchanging plan for our lives. Until we look there first, we have no business even contemplating divorce or asking about divorce or looking for an exit from our marriage. So I began last week with, I began last week with just three words of clarification. Number one, nothing that Jesus has said or I will say this morning is intended to encourage anyone to remain in a home where there is ongoing abuse of any kind. If you, sorry, if you or your children or anyone entrusted to your care are not safe, it is your obligation before God to get out. If you will just sound the alarm, this church will come and we will help you. We will get and we will keep you safe and we will pass no judgment whatsoever on how you got where you got. Secondly, Please do not believe for one second, I think I've already illustrated that, but do not believe for one second that I preach this morning sermon from a position of superiority. Amanda and I are married today only because of God's grace, and we will remain married tomorrow only because of God's grace. The words that I speak this morning, they strike first my own sinful heart. I don't stand here and pass judgment or condemnation on a one of you. And lastly, despite what other preachers may have led you to believe, divorce and remarriage are not unforgivable sins. God came to redeem sinners. He didn't forget about adulterers or divorcees or anyone else. would tell you as well that our goal this morning that God's goal for your marriage it isn't just don't get divorced some of the most beautiful Christ-honoring holy marriages within this church family are second and third and fourth marriages and some of the most ugly sin-stained marriages within this church are first marriages but hey, they didn't get divorced. The standard, God's holy standard, isn't just don't get divorced. And so I plead with you as we head into these very, very deep and personal waters. The enemy does not want you to hear God's word. He does not want you to receive the hope and the joy and the life that can only be found in God's word. He's going to do everything he can to keep you offended and upset, perhaps humiliated and ashamed. He's going to do absolutely everything that he can to seek to keep you distracted and annoyed and completely unable to hear the words that God's going to say to you this morning. He's going to seek to leave you feeling condemned, either convinced that God has actually condemned and cast you away forever, or that the preacher standing in this pulpit seeks to leave you condemned and without hope. Dear friends, don't let him do it. As the first and foundational institution in all the world, is there anything that Satan wants to attack more than marriage? Is there anything that Satan would seek to destroy and to distort more than God's picture of marriage? And so I beg you, for your sake, for our sake, receive whatever it is that God says to you this morning. Whatever sting that comes from God's word this morning, would you receive it as the refining fire of your Holy Father? 
not the words of a man. Do not pull back. Press deeper. Lean in. Trust God and his word alone. And may it only be by his word that you judge the truthfulness of anything that I say from this platform this morning. His is the only standard. So I beg you, do not let your ability to hear the words that I speak to you this morning be tied to your feelings about the messenger or your immediate emotional response to the message. So with that, we turn to God's word. I ask you to please stand to your feet in reverence. We return to Mark chapter 10, beginning in the first verse. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and, ordered, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, we need you now more than ever. Would you speak clearly to your people? They await your word. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as we discussed last week, Jesus and his disciples, they're headed south out of the region of Galilee down into Judea and Perea. This is where they will spend the next six months, the last six months of Jesus' life before he goes up into Jerusalem where he will be tried and killed before rising again. Time is short. And so Jesus is focused intently on making sure that his disciples have a true and clear picture of what it really means to follow him. Specifically, he's going to pay great attention to driving home to them the reality of the price, the cost, the suffering, the self-sacrifice that comes with true obedience to Jesus Christ our Lord. The Pharisees were there, as was always the case. The Pharisees were following. The Pharisees were there, and they sought to trip him up. They asked him this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? According to Jewish custom, compare it according to Roman custom, according to all the customs of the day, it was legal for a man to divorce his wife. The real question is expanded a bit in Matthew's parallel where he says, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The question wasn't, was it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The, the question was, on what grounds? So Jesus follows his normal pattern. He answers a question with a question. He says to them, what did Moses command you? The Pharisees rightly answer. They say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, if you were to do a complete survey of all the Old Testament, specifically the law, you would find very little there said on the topic of divorce. The Pharisees, of course, they were referring to a passage in Deuteronomy 24. And we really dissected that passage last week. But in short, what happened here is we don't find Moses making a command for divorce. What he's doing in actuality is he's addressing a scenario that can happen. He's saying if there's a man and he's married, if the man's wife does not find favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
and he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her away. These are all just ifs. If these things happen, and if that woman marries another man, and if that other man dies or sends her away, that first husband can't take her back as his wife because this woman has been defiled by her union to the second man. Now, while God did not explicitly say here divorce is not allowed, he has made clear that the woman is made unclean. She is defiled by her second union to this man. And I believe that's key to everything that we're going to understand going forward. Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So Jesus tells his Pharisees, God has given this provision because you are a hard-hearted and adulterous people. You are unfaithful to God, you are unfaithful to each other, and you are real quick to abandon even your most sacred of vows. He goes on. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So I still shake my head at just how obvious and yet how easy it is to lose sight of this reality as Jesus takes them back to the beginning. First, he goes to Moses. That's what they know. That's their playing field. They're experts in the law. He takes them to Moses, but he says, you can't stop here. You have to go all the way back to the beginning, to the creation story. You must know that this allowance that my father has made, it is so that he can restrict the damage that is done by your sin. It is so he can manage the fallout from the evil that is in your hearts. But from the beginning, this was not so. You must go all the way back and look at my, God, my father's good and perfect design for marriage and for every single part of your life. And what Jesus does there, of course, is he references two portions of the creation story, Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. It is from there that we built our understanding of marriage last week that God had created men and women in equal but very different ways. While he created woman from man and for man, it was from that point forward that every man that came would come forth from the womb of a woman. So we see this beautiful picture of interdependence here in the way that God has brought these men and women together as one flesh, giving themselves over completely in every way imaginable, giving themselves over to each other. And then... He gives that first commandment there at that wedding ceremony, that very first wedding ceremony. He tells them, have babies, lots and lots of babies. But don't just have them, train them. Teach them about me. Raise them to love and obey me. Send them out into the world that there in my creation I may be represented by these bunch of little image bearers representing me to my, crea my creation. This was the first and primary purpose for, uh, for marriage. Procreation with a purpose. I'm going to trademark that. Put it on a shirt. Procreator with a purpose. Right? So as with all things, with the coming of Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church, the sending of the Holy Spirit, God reveals to us an even deeper an even greater, an even higher meaning to his purpose behind marriage. And Paul makes this explicitly clear in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, where he says that this is a picture. What is happening together in marriage with husband and wife, it is a picture to the world of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Dear friends, don't merely pass over this and nod your heads. I need you to hear what this says. This is fundamental to everything that comes next. Your Marriage is a picture. It is a picture to the world out there, and it is a picture to everyone living within your home of Jesus Christ and his precious bride, the church. 
what you say about marriage, how you live out your marriage, your commitment to or your abandonment of your marriage. They all say something about Jesus Christ and the bride that he bought with his own blood. Feel the weight of that. I am sorry. Part of the sorrow you sensed in me as we began, I am sorry. That for so many of you, the man that married you didn't tell you that. I don't mean your husband, I mean the preacher. I will tell you that I did not always feel the full weight of that, even at a time when I was officiating weddings. But you must feel this. Your marriage, my marriage, every single marriage, it either tells the truth about the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church, or it tells a lie. Your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is not about your happiness. It's about something so much greater, so much higher, so much further beyond. And everyone tends to applaud and nod their head at this point, but the question is, what do you do when it's not fun? What do you do when she doesn't act the way you think she's supposed to act? What do you do when she introduces grotesque sin into this union? Again, dear friends, this is about so much more than just not divorcing. That is not God's highest standard. Just don't divorce. It's husbands, are you laying down your life for your wife? Are you cleansing her with the washing of God's word? Are you leading her? Are you showing her the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, forsaking all others and refusing to turn your back on her? That is God's standard. So Jesus quotes Moses here in the retelling of the creation story. God has made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the quote ends there, but now we get the commentary. Dear friends, I've got an office full of Bible commentary, but there is nothing which even comes close to approaching the beauty and the authority of the commentary of the word, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So he adds this commentary here, and what he says is, this is how you can understand my father's purpose in creating them male and female. This is how you can understand God's purpose in bringing them together in one flesh. This is my answer to the Pharisees' question about divorce. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. This, dear friends, is your answer. What God has joined together, let no man separate. You are joined together by God. Regardless of whether you or your wife thought anything about God in that moment or today, you are joined together by God, and man never has a right to separate that which God has joined together as one. This is in part the driver behind the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Because in the creation of life, God brought together two things into one, body and soul, and death is the separation. It's the tearing apart of that. And just as God has said, you didn't create life, therefore you don't have the right to separate it. He has said the same about your marriage. What I have joined together, you have no right to reach out your hand and separate. Keep your hands off. 
This is the express teaching, the straightforward teaching of Jesus Christ. I've yet to give you a single one of my own words. Matthew records the very same statement. No variation at all. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Remarkably clear teaching. Goes on in, in Mark's gospel, 10 verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So we see this insider outsider theme that runs all throughout Mark's gospel as Jesus was consistently calling aside his disciples and giving them information that he wasn't giving to the rest of the crowd. So he tells them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So he takes this prohibition just a little bit further. He says, I've just told you that you don't have the right to divorce. I've just told you that what God has joined together, you have no right to separate. And now I'm going even further. If you choose to disobey, if you choose to divorce, and then you marry another woman, that adds adultery as an additional sin on top of what you've done. And the same thing applies for the woman if she divorces her husband and marries another man. This is the commentary of Jesus Christ, not your pastor. Now, if we were dealing with any other text in the whole wide world, we would simply stop there. If we were dealing with any other topic, any other subject, any other portion of Jesus' teaching, other than this, we would stop right there. Jesus has explicitly forbidden divorce and remarriage. That settles it. But any of you that have spent any time studying this subject or wrestling around in God's word, you know about what is called the exception clauses. As I was reading this straightforward, unequivocal text to you, your mind was immediately thinking, yes, but... Yes, but I know that in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, I know that there's an exception clause there. And that exception clause means that I am free in cases of adultery, that I am free to divorce my spouse and to marry again. Many of you have likely also heard of the exception clause within 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says that a woman is not enslaved any longer if her a believing woman, if her unbelieving spouse leaves her. And you've been taught that that tells you that if you are a believer and an unbelieving spouse abandons you, that you are free to remarry. This is the traditional Protestant Southern Baptist view on this subject. This is a view which came forth by a guy named Erasmus. He was a Catholic priest in the 16th century. He was the first guy to really present this in a well-thought-out, organized form. And there's really two lines of thought here. The first line of thought is in the Old Testament, specifically in Leviticus 20, Verse 10, it says that if a woman is caught into adultery, she is to be executed. It's a capital offense. She's to be taken outside and stoned. And so if I'm a man and I'm married to a woman, she commits adultery. She is taken out and she is killed. What does that make me? A widower. Now I'm no longer married to her and I'm free to remarry. Many would argue that looking forward just because God has extended grace to adulterers, just because God has no longer demanded the life of someone that commits adultery, that surely it would be too harsh for him to require an innocent spouse to remain married to someone who has committed adultery to him. Therefore, as an act of grace to the innocent spouse, God has said, I release you from this marriage and I release you to be married again, just as if your first spouse was dead. Other people that don't hold to that line continue to hold on to this exception clause on the basis of the fact that 
just as God has joined together through, through the sexual consummation of a marriage and much more, but just as he has joined together two flesh as one in the act of marriage, that whenever a man comes together with another woman outside of marriage, there is a coming together, a oneness of flesh. 1 Corinthians 6, 16 seems to point to this, where it says, do you not know that if you lay with a prostitute, that you too, you join flesh? So many people, they say that this joining together of flesh must be identical to the first joining together of flesh within your marriage. Therefore, you've broken this first bond. It's as if you were not married to that first person any longer because they have joined together in flesh with another. Therefore, the marriage is no longer in force. You're free to divorce, and you're free to remarry. People that hold to that view, they argue that the reason Mark doesn't say this explicitly is because it would have been assumed. These customs would have been assumed by the first century Jewish reader. But I would ask, Mark explains Jewish customs more than any other gospel writer. We're told that Mark's gospel is the gospel to the Gentiles. Wouldn't he be the one most likely to explain these customs? These people that wouldn't have known them? But if you believe this, if you hold to these exception clauses, I want you to know that you're in very, very good company. The vast majority, and I'm telling you it's not even close, the vast majority of good, solid, Bible-believing, faithful preachers and theologians for the last 500 years have held to this belief. I'm talking about men that I can't carry water for. The John MacArthur's, the R.C. Sproul's, the Steve Lawson's. I mean, the, the cream of the crop. Probably every preacher you've ever sat under has taught you this. So if you hold to that view, you're in very, very good company. But I will tell you that that was not the view held by the church for the first five centuries. If you look back at the early first church fathers, I'm talking about men like Hermes, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement, Origen, Tortullian. These are not people that you think of like Billy Graham, but I'm telling you, these are the men that were closest to the original writings. Some of these men having access to the original apostles I will tell you that for the first five centuries of the church, it was universally, almost universally, and without exception accepted, that marriage con uh, con connects, that marriage brings together a man and a woman until death. No exceptions whatsoever. So while you have sat under many, many sermons that speak to you about the exception clauses, it is only fair that I present to you what the early church fathers held to. And it's only fair that I present that to you in a way that is directly from God's word. That's what we're going to do the remainder of our time this morning. As I said to you when we first began, before you hear anything that I have to say on remarriage, would, divorce and remarriage, would you listen very carefully what the scripture actually says? Specifically, with regards to the full context of everything else that Jesus and Paul has said about this same topic. Would you allow the difficult passages in scripture to be interpreted by the straightforward and plain teaching of Jesus Christ? And then, would you prayerfully consider what God is leading you to believe? Would you carefully consider what is the truth based on what he has said, not what I have said? I don't seek to persuade you this morning. I seek to present you what I believe to be the truth straight out of God's word. But I realize that what I'm asking you to do this morning is something that is almost impossible. Because every single one of us, we come to the scriptures as badly as we want to make sure that we don't read our own thoughts into the text. As badly as we want to make sure that the text drives our, uh, informs and dictates our beliefs, not the other way around. Every single one of us, we come to God's word and we must overcome a myriad of problems, a myriad of obstacles. What were we taught as a child? What have we always believed? How does the teaching potentially affect my current circumstances? 
and perhaps most heavy, what is my emotional response to the teaching? What I'm asking you to do, dear friends, I understand it is almost impossible, but I'm pleading with you to do it. Otherwise, you're going to shut me out right now. You're not going to hear a word that I have to say. But I need you to know that if you walk out of here completely unconvinced, if you walk out of here this morning convinced that I am absolutely out of my mind, that what I have sought to do this morning was to take a gift, an act of grace that God has extended to an innocent spouse, if what you believe is I've done is taken that and I've taken it away from you, so be it. I want you to know that we will lock arms and we will march straight forward, arm in arm, towards the throne room of God. This is a secondary issue. It's a heavy one. This isn't an academic exercise, but this is a secondary issue nonetheless. And there is great room for disagreement on this subject. It should not and it will not hamper our communion or our fellowship one bit whatsoever. My understanding of Jesus' teaching on the subject of divorce and remarriage, how I hold this view, it says nothing about how I view you or your worth in the kingdom of God. There are no irredeemable people. There are no irredeemable marriages. God has made holy and pure and sanctified and washed by the cleansing of his son's blood marriages that were first and second and third and tenth. So, we'll discuss next week the implications of all. We're gonna, this is a three-parter. Golly, of all the things I picked to be a three-parter. Next week, we're going to talk about the implications, the practical implications of what this means for us as a faith family. And I'm going to explain to you some more of what I mean. But, but I can assure to you this. No matter where you stand, no matter where I stand on this subject, there is room for great measures of love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness and grace. This will not destroy us as a church. Do you hear me? This is a secondary issue. So don't let anything other than the word of God dictate what you believe going forward. I plead. So we've just read the straightforward teaching of Mark 10. No divorce, no remarriage, no exceptions. Look with me. Luke 16, verse 18. Everyone, it's going to be on the screen if you can't find it in your Bible fast enough, but it is good that you can find it in your Bible. Luke 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. This is basically just a restatement of what Mark has already said. Everyone, without exception, who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Now he adds a new piece of information. And who marries... A a, a woman divorced from her husband also commits adultery. This is the new information. He reintroduces the reality that a man can also commit adultery by marrying a woman that has been divorced. Both parties now, you're going to have to picture this. This is hard stuff. This is not easy. Both parties in this new marriage, the woman that has divorced her husband, the man that comes and marries that woman, they're both now guilty of adultery. Let's look. And a message from Paul. Go to the book of Romans. You go to Romans 7. Now this, this teaching here, the primary purpose for Paul's teaching here is with regards to believers and their relationship to the law. And yet he gives us a very clear statement with regards to the union in marriage. He says, Romans 7, verse 2 through 3. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. What 
God is clearly teaching through the Apostle Paul here is a man and a woman, they are joined together for life. If the man dies, you are now a widow, you are free, you are released. There is no marriage in heaven, so you are now free to remarry whomever you'd like in the Lord. And yet, if you have joined together with another man in marriage and you separate, if you marry another, you have become an adulteress. Paul continues preaching, very similar thought in 1 Corinthians 7.39. 1 Corinthians 7.39, and maybe we need to put this on church center later today, all these, so you can go back and look for them, because it is important that you see these. These aren't my words. 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. That's basically the same statement that he made in Romans. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry whomever she wishes only in the Lord. Again, no exceptions given. No exceptions given. You are bound together for life until one of you dies. A man is free once his wife dies. A woman is free once his wife dies. But anything before that is considered adultery. So what God is saying very clearly here is that divorce, divorce in the eyes of the law, divorce in the eyes of man, it does not separate the union of what God has brought together. In God's eyes, you are still married to your living spouse. That's what he's saying here. Until death do us part. That's the original marriage vow, right? Until death do us part, as long as we both shall live. So you want to know whether it's God's will for you to be separated from your spouse? He'll kill him. What God has joined together, let not man separate. How does God separate? He will take one of you out. And I believe he has done that. We stay in the letter of the first Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Now, this is important. Whenever Paul says, not I, but the Lord, what he's saying is, we've got to assume what he's saying here, is that this is a direct saying of Jesus that has been passed on to Paul. He's saying, I'm passing on to you something that Jesus said. He's saying, not I, but the Lord says. And this is a charge, by the way. It says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce. The Lord gives this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. But if they do, they should both remain unmarried and, or be reconciled to each other. No wiggle room, no outs, no exception. Divorce is not allowed. Remarriage is not allowed. Are you beginning to see the picture here? All of this was written within the context of a Jewish and a Roman society that was divorce-happy. This was contrary to the grain. We don't need to look back and go, oh, those people were a bunch of prudes. They don't know the world that we live in. Divorce was just as rampant then as it was today. And yet we see all of these texts, but this doesn't settle the case. That wouldn't be fair. We've got three more texts that we need to deal with, three more New Testament texts that we need to wrestle with. We're going to wrestle with two of them this morning and one of them next week. But you cannot simply read those three texts into a vacuum. That's where people get in trouble. You must read the whole of what Scripture has to say, especially when those same authors, those same speakers, those same teachers have spoken on the very same subject. You've got to read all of that together. You've got to consider it together in order to have any hope of understanding anywhere that there are perceived contradictions in what's been said, right? So we're going to turn now to Matthew's gospel. And I warn you, this is... This is this is technical and heady stuff. This is already a topic filled with so much emotion. Y'all made me cry. 
This is already a subject filled with so much emotion. I don't need to insert any more emotion into this conversation. So I need you to engage your minds. I need you to think. I need you to read the words of God. I need you to pray to him that he would help you to see the truth here. If you walk out of here convinced I'm insane, that's okay. Each man must hold to his own convictions. Let's look at it here. Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is doing is he's providing a picture, just a, a radical picture of the kingdom of God. It's really one of the, the most precious sermons. And he's painting this picture of the righteousness and the obedience that comes in following after Jesus Christ. He's illuminating the path that leads to eternal blessing. So here in chapter 5, after the Beatitudes, he gives us seven statements that contrast. These seven contrasting statements. As one that has come to fulfill the law to the very last letter, Jesus is showing his followers then, and he's showing us today the true meaning, the true depth. He's opening up the law. He's showing us the fullest extent of the law, much like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus, and he said, yeah, I can check all the boxes. I'm a pretty good dude. I followed all the law, and he just unveils this plethora of sin behind him, in his case, namely his greed. He's opening up. He's showing us the depth of God's law, how deep it goes, the sin that boils forth from our heart. He's showing us a radical picture. He says there, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were the law keepers. These were the most holy dudes anyone knew, and Jesus is saying, you must be more righteous than them to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, it's only by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that anyone sees the kingdom of heaven. And yet, he is setting before us this holy standard, this unshakable standard, this standard, the depths of which no man could ever fully comprehend in this lifetime. He's saying this. This is the truth of obedience. This is the depth of obedience. I'm exposing to you how far your sin goes. He would say things like, you have heard it say, do not murder. But I say to you, you must watch your heart because you will even answer to God for your anger for even an angry word. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, watch your eyes, because to even look at a woman with lust in your heart is to commit adultery with her in your heart. So he's, he's saying here, you've, you've got to be careful. The sin goes deep, deeper than you could ever imagine. He's not lessening the picture of sin, he's carrying it deeper. He's not diminishing the law, he's showing us what it truly means. It's true and original purpose. So it's in this context, it's in this context of Jesus speaking about radical obedience, unlike anything the world has ever known, that he gives us the first of the exception clauses. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So you heard that exception clause in there, right? Except for sexual immorality. It jumps off the page at you. It's the first time in any of the texts we've read where we see language like that. Except for sexual immorality. So firstly, I would tell you, let's look at what Jesus actually has to say about marriage and divorce here. What actual commandments and instructions does he give with regards to marriage and divorce here? Because I will tell you that despite the heading that modern, commentary, ter, uh, modern translators put at the top of this section... This saying is not about divorce and remarriage. It's about adultery. It points to the section that comes right before it. He's talking about this. Buckle down. This is, this is going to be hard. He says, you have heard it said that you can give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. That was what was said. The rabbis had taught this based on the understanding of Deuteronomy 24. 
This was a big step up from other cultures, because in other cultures, you could just look at your wife and just speak to her, and she's divorced, and now she has no way of going to find another man for protection or provision or any of those things. So in the, in the, in the eyes of these people, this was a big step up to give a woman a certificate of divorce, because it set her free. The leading conservative rabbi of the day, we talked about him last week, Rabbi Shammai, he taught that divorce was only allowed in circumstances of sexual immorality, such as adultery. This would have been a stance that was held by some of the Pharisees, perhaps even some of the people sitting there on the mountain that day. This was their standard. In fact, Jewish and Roman cultures, they demanded, if a man's woman committed adultery, they demanded that he divorce her. So again, this would have been the stance of some of the Pharisees standing there on that day, perhaps some of the people sitting there on the mountain. So Jesus says, you have heard that teaching. You have heard the teaching that says, write your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for the grounds of sexual immorality. Still not a command for divorce. He is just dealing with, the, just like Deuteronomy 24. He's just saying, if this thing happens, this thing which sometimes happens, a dude divorces his wife for a reason that's not sexual immorality. If that thing happens, call it burning the toast for clarity's sake going forward. If a man divorces his wife for burning the toast, you make her commit adultery. I'm curious how many of you are already ahead of me. Jesus is working from the first century standpoint of view, right? With the assumption that if a woman was divorced, she was going to go and immediately remarry for protection, for, for provision, for all of these things. He was working from that assumption. Again, he's not, he's not commanding it. He's not condoning it. He's just saying, this is the way this thing works. And he's saying, if this happens, the wife commits adultery. The union between this woman and the other man, presumably coming together in sexual consummation, that constitutes adultery. And that the husband is the one that is forced. The first husband is the one that is caused. He has made her to commit this adultery. Except if there's been the case of sexual immorality. What is adultery? Adultery is sexual activity between a married person with someone that is not their spouse. So apparently, the wife sent away for no reason. The wife sent away for bone, burn, uh, burning the toast. The wife that's been sent away for any reason other than sexual, sexual immorality, apparently she is still married to her first husband in God's eyes. So that when she comes together in marriage and sexual contact with this other man, that constitutes adultery. And the first husband is responsible for that adultery. I haven't even gotten to the interpretation yet. Are you tracking with me? Let's keep going. We're just interacting with the text here. If it holds, the husband, the first husband, makes his wife commit adultery if he divorces her for any reason other than sexual immorality. Then does it hold that if the first husband divorces his wife for the reason of sexual immorality, he doesn't cause her to commit adultery? I think yes. I think yes. The result of this man sending his wife away without warrant, the result is this man is guilty for his wife's adultery. Here are the two scenarios. Wife burns the toast. Man divorces her. He's responsible for her adultery, right? Wife commits adultery. Man divorces her and is not responsible for her adultery. But what Jesus has not said in either scenario is that this second marriage is not adultery. To read that into the text is to do exactly that, is to read your belief into the text. 
All Jesus is dealing with here is simply who is responsible for the adultery in this second marriage. Do you see this? I want you to see the absurd implications if that's not what's happened here. Follow with me now, okay? Divorce a wife for no reason, she commits adultery as she remarries. Jesus said that. There's no debating that. He literally just said that. Divorce a wife for burning the toast, she remarries, she's committed adultery. Divorce a wife for cheating on her husband, she remarries and it's not a problem? How could that be? Now you can argue, you can argue that being joined together here is not adultery. You could say that, right? She has severed her tithe with this man by her first act of adultery, and therefore it's not technically adultery when she joins to another, but we're saying it's not sinful and not a problem? Because if that's the case, and people hold to this, if that's the case, if I'm a wife who has been divorced for burning the toast, and I want to remarry, I'm going to go ahead and go sleep with somebody so that I can purify this next marriage. So it's not sin, or it's not adultery. Guys, it's hard. I mean, it, I don't know how many hours I've spent this week. 40 hours maybe just wrestling with this. I don't expect you to understand it in 30 minutes. But this is what Jesus has said here. He's saying that the unfaithful woman, if you have committed adultery here, if you have committed sexual immorality here, and therefore your husband divorces you and you marry another, you and not your husband are responsible for whatever sin occurs here. Your husband did not force the adultery. You did. You can't make somebody what they already were. Man, I need to hurry up. He goes on by ending with an absolute statement. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. No exception, no qualification. The divorced woman marries again, it's adultery. The dude that marries her, he also commits adultery. There's no statement whatsoever about this first husband yet. There's a statement that he has forced his wife to commit adultery, but there's no statement whatsoever about that first husband and whether or not he, his divorce or his remarriage is sinful in the eyes of God. And that's really the question, isn't it? That's really who everybody wonders about. What about the dude that got cheated on? Nobody has a whole lot of concern about the lady that cheated and then gets sent out. She's already committed whatever manner of sin within her marriage. That's not the one that people feel for. Frankly, that's not the person I was standing here crying for this morning. I'm crying for the man that has been cheated on, that sends his wife away. What does God say about that? What does God say about his divorce? And what does God say about his remarriage? I know how radical this is. I want you to know it was radical in the first century as well. We're going to see when we get to Matthew 19, not going to get there today. We're going to have to, this will be a four-part or five-parter maybe. What you're going to see when you get to Matthew 19, you're going to see the reality that Jesus' disciples, those who have been following him for two and a half years, those that have been hearing all about the radical nation, nature of the kingdom of God, those that knew all about the depth of what God was calling them to in terms of obedience, when Jesus delivered these sayings, as soon as he was alone with them, they went, what in the world, Jesus, and why would anybody get married? They wouldn't say that if all Jesus had said was, well, you're only tra trapped with her as long as she doesn't cheat. The disciples weren't blown away because Jesus said you can't divorce your wife for burning the toast. This was radical teaching in Jesus' day. 
This was something unheard of in Jesus' day, transformative. As radical as telling you that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. As radical as saying that to look at a woman with lust is to commit adultery in your heart. As radical as saying that you must love your enemies. As radical as saying that you must endure pain and suffering and torment and toil in this lifetime for the sake of the kingdom of God. As radical as saying that you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. This was radical. And what Jesus was calling his disciples to was impossible. What he was calling them to was impossible. It could only be through the transformative, supernatural working of God on these men's lives that they would have any possibility of holding to this standard. But this was his glorious standard. And I ask you, dear friends, what is it called when we fall short of God's standard? Sin. Show me somewhere else in Scripture where God has set his good and glorious and perfect standard, and he said, well, you fall short, that's just okay. We won't call that sin. This is radical teaching. So in light of that, I am going to just dip my toe into the water of Matthew 19 here. Just in, in light of that, Matthew 19 plays out the exact same way as Mark 10. It's in a little bit different order, but the exact same kind of absolute statements. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I mean, he, he hits it head on, same way. But then the, then the Pharisees, they push back a little bit, referring again to Deuteronomy 24. And then we come to this, the second of the acceptive clauses, Matthew 19, 19. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now we're talking about the first dude. You with me? That first husband has now come into the picture. And he's saying, if you divorce your wife, yourself, if you're going to hold to this permissive view, this view that says that divorce and remarriage in the cases of sexual morality are acceptable before God. And again, you have your right to that. We will continue to move together. Our staff isn't even in agreement about this, by the way. I want you to know that I charged some of our staff members this week to go and do their research and come back and convince me that I'm wrong on this. That's how bad I did not want to preach this sermon. I said, go do your homework and you come back and you convince me that I'm wrong on this topic. I, I could not be convinced and each man must preach that of which he has been convicted. But I want you to know that if you're going to continue to hold to that view, you've got to hold on to this one sentence in light of everything else that has been said. Because let's, let's take stock here of everyone that Jesus has explicitly said commits adultery if they remarry. A woman divorced for no good reason. A woman convorced, uh, divorced for adultery. A man that marries a divorced woman. A man that divorces his wife for no good reason and remarries. There's only one potential person here that gets an exception. In light of all these straightforward teaching, there's one potential man, and that's the man that divorces his wife because she has committed adultery. And I ask you, would God extend to a woman that is divorced, excuse me, extend to a man that is divorced because his wife cheated a right and then withhold that to some poor woman that got divorced for burning the toast? Does that make sense? Is that what you believe that God has said in his word? You can hold that, and there are lots of good people that do. But I can't get there. I can't hold on to that. And again, I know how radical this teaching is. I know that this puts me contrary to the rest of the world. I know that this puts me in danger of offending so many of you. But I can't be convicted of this. I can't be convicted that the God who says, rejoice in your suffering. Forgive those that persecute you. Remain steadfast under trial. 
Look back to the heroes of the faith who suffered greatly for their obedience to me and yet refused release. The God that over and over and over again has called you to press on, to push on, to continue on in radical obedience in spite of all the suffering in this world. That the God who has promised, I will be with you, I will comfort you, I will come to you, I will bless you as a result of your painful obedience to me with the singular exception of sexual sin. Now, I don't diminish the weight of sexual sin. Just because adultery has not entered into my marriage, by the way, that's a lie because I have looked with lust. But just because adultery has not entered into my marriage, I don't diminish the weight of it. Difference, I've walked with plenty of people who have suffered through adultery. I'm not talking about once. I'm talking about continued, ongoing, painful, heart-wrenching. I have watched people that have endured pain, the likes of which I didn't think a human could press on through. And I've watched as God has blessed them. I've watched as God has blessed them. As they have stood there and they have said, I will keep my vow. You lie about Jesus Christ all you want. I will not. Does that mean that I get my heart ripped out day after day after day? Yes, dear friends, that's what those tears were about. I don't relish that, but I know there's blessing. I know that I must say this to you because there's surely somebody in this room that's right there. You're getting kicked in the teeth day after day after day. And for a teacher to come in here and tell you, yeah, but you gotta stay. You gotta press on, you gotta endure. That seems just cruel exorbitantly cruel but dear friends there's so much blessing on the back side of this as you mirror to the world the picture of who jesus christ is the jesus christ i, I know the stories i, I know that the words of jeremiah 3 i know isaiah 50 i know about israel being adulterous i know about god sending them away into exile exile but i also know that he wanted to call them back i also know the story of hosea a man of god who was called to not only forgive but to pursue to purchase to lavish songs of love upon a woman that sold herself for sex and bore children that were not his. I also know the story of Jesus Christ, who suffered more than you could ever imagine, and condescending to come to heaven to give himself, to lay down his life for the sake of sinful men and women. I know that picture. I know that picture. I know that he gave his life that he could cleanse us. He could present to himself a beautiful and pure bride. Dear friends, if I cheated on Jesus Christ, oh boy, have I. But I praise God that he has not forsaken me. That's the hope. I pray that you see hope, not condemnation in this. Dear friends, again, wherever God has you, he will refine you. He will redeem you. He will use you. If you turn to Jesus Christ and you trust in him, he will make your marriage more holy than you could ever imagine. He will use you. Some of my favorite couples in this church are second and third and fourth marriages. Don't get it twisted. But I'm telling you that you need to see the hope in Jesus Christ who says, I will not break my vows. I will not divorce you. I will not send you away. Even when you cheat. Even when you blaspheme. Even when you misrepresent me to the world by divorcing your wife for burning the toast, I still will not forsake you. Dear friends, that's the hope of the gospel. And that is the gospel message that you can portray to the world if you do this hard thing. And dear friends, God could redeem your spouse through exactly this thing. As they abandon you for no good reason whatsoever, and you stand there and you say, I represent 
Christ. Who does that? Who in the world does that? Only somebody who's been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Only somebody with a radical belief in the promises of God. Let us pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this word, Father. It is not fun. You know better than I, it is not fun, but it is your word. Father, would you allow these people to see through my own weaknesses? Would you allow these people to see through my stumbling and bumbling and just stupidity, Father? I, I cannot express your word in the way that it, it deserves. So, Father, if I've misspoken from this platform in any way, Father, overcome that, I pray. I do not want to mislead. I do not for one moment want to restrict someone from a gift of grace that you have given to them. Father, I do not seek to be more restrictive than your word. So, Father, show each man and woman the truth of your word. Let them be convinced. Let them be convinced. And then, on the basis of whatever that is, let them go in peace. And let us go in unity. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.